This is the Author Archive podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Patricia Cornwall. The occasion was the publication of a book called Isle of Dogs, not a Case Carpetta novel, the third in a different series. But already she was so successful. She had her own helicopter. She arrived for the interview with a personal bodyguard. She'd had a colourful private life which had made the tabloids. Uh, She was already beginning to work on her theory about Jack the Ripper. But we talked about the writer's craft, particularly the crime writer's craft. And in The Isle of Dogs, it starts with a unique person. Unique, (laughs) uniquely awful, but also unique in another way. Well, she is, her name is unique and she's a, a psychopath. But a beautiful one. She, well, see, that just goes to show you, I often say that people don't always look like what they do. And this is what's so difficult about criminals, because very often, especially when they get dressed up and appear in the courtroom, and you look at this guy in a suit and tie, and he's shaved off his beard, and his hair looks nice, or the woman's in a nice suit with her makeup on, and you cannot believe that this person raped and murdered somebody, or, you know, poisoned five people and with arsenic, or whatever the case may be. But we, we expect these people to look like monsters. And that is what is, in many ways, very dangerous about them, like Ted Bundy, because you, you don't, you're charmed. You know, we judge people so much by their appearance. And evil people uh, may, don't always look any different than your next-door neighbor. But, but my next-door neighbor doesn't look as beautiful as this girl because she is lovely, and she knows she's lovely, and she uses it. Right. She does. And she does monstrous things. She, she is, without a, do- a doubt, a monster. She is the classical definition of a psychopath, which is somebody who has no conscience. They, they, cannot, they cannot and will not, or maybe they are genetically incapable of discerning between right and wrong. They, they do not feel remorse. There's only one fear a psychopath has, and that's of being caught. And so when you hear some psychopath in prison feeling remorse or saying he's sorry for what he did, it's a bunch of baloney. What he's really sorry about is that he got incarcerated, that he got caught. And it's not, he's not sorry about his crimes. They don't feel anything. They feel nothing. They're almost in a state of perpetual numbness, which is in a way a hell on earth, I would expect, to feel nothing. And I think that they're, the only really feelings that they get are when they get high off their crimes, the bloodlust, and then, of course, you know, Unique, this monstrous female character who's a teenager, um, she goes back and, and she photographs her victims. And then, of course, that's part of the fantasy, and that's very typical of these serial killers, that they take souvenirs, they take photographs, because... It's almost like the murder is incidental. What's really big for them and important is the fantasy stage. And so they can go back and fantasize and fantasize about what they have done, and also fantasize in a sexual way, and then the tension builds again, and then they go and yeah, find another victim. That's what comes out in the way you write about it, that the, the need to, 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 to somehow dissipate this tension 
keeps growing. And you, you speak about this with authority, because presumably you've met these guys. You've talked to them. Well, I have, I have certainly seen them, and I, I know enough about the, from spending so much time with the people who catch them and who chase them, you know, the law enforcers, federal and uh, the local law enforcement, uh, knowing profilers, uh, certainly spending all the years in the medical examiner's office. And you, you pick up a lot simply through osmosis. I've been through countless, sat through countless murder trials. And it's very interesting to watch the affect of these prisoners who are sitting there with literally, in some cases, their lives in the balance, and how so often your, your true psychopaths have no affect whatsoever. They just sit there. They, they don't care. They, they dispassionately, they're allowed to look at anything that their defense attorneys can look at. So they can look at the morgue pictures, they can look at the crime scene pictures, and they'll just look on, no expression on the face, flipping through. And, and But in some, some killers, on the other hand, uh, who still have done something very wrong and are violent offenders, when those morgue and scene photos come to the defense attorney's table, they'll, they'll look at something else and start going like this, or they start making notes on a legal pad, but they don't want to look at them. They don't want to see them. The power of, of your books has always been the power of the writing of a woman who knows. Because you've been doing it a while and hugely successful, do you still immerse yourself? Do you still research? Do you still kind of live the life that you write about? Oh, absolutely. I've, I think that you cannot go into neutral just because you've won a race. Because you're going to have all these cars passing you on the road. And what's worse is you're not going to learn anything new. And, and I, I, the thing that would fear me most is to have nothing to say. And the only way that I will continue to have something to say, this is my 14th novel. Um, I have 11 of the Scarpetta novels. This is a third of the Andy Brazil series. And after 14 novels, at age 45, it'd be very easy to simply run out of ideas or start recycling because, it'd be, you know, I've also often thought, wouldn't it be nice just to sit back and know so much that I don't have to go to any, I don't have to go to the morgue anymore. I don't have to go to the labs anymore. I don't have to have one more uh, demonstration of how the scanning electron microscope works. Um, it's all exhausting. And in many ways, emotionally, it's very draining. The morgue is very hard for me. It's in some ways harder for me now than it was when I worked there because I got used to it. I build up a certain stamina for going down into the autopsy suite and seeing and taking notes and doing the things that I did. Now, having been away from it for so long and only going down there three or four times a year, I have to really steel myself to walk into that place. And, and be assaulted by the sights and the smells and the sounds of, of the autopsy suite. But if I don't do it, I don't deserve to write about these people because I have to feel that pain. Do you still feel the passion to write about it? Do you still need to kind of feel your own feeling of well-being and then own, own enjoyment? only way I feel that passion is to go out and do the work. And that's what gives me the passion. And, I, and I'll give you an example. Um, I went down to the morgue one day. Uh, maybe this was a year and a half ago, I was actually there doing something else, and I happened to go in the autopsy suite, and there was there were a number of suicide cases, uh, you know, like three. Three out of the five cases that day were suicides. And this one man, two of them had left notes. And one of them, 
was an older fellow and he had diabetes and he'd already had his foot amputated and now they're going to have to amputate more of his leg and he was living with his mother and he just wrote this note about his health is so bad he couldn't take it anymore and he lay down on a blanket in front of the refrigerator put his pillow over his head and shot himself through the pillow and, and um, he was so meticulous that he had filled out all the information about his funeral, who the pallbearers were to be. He'd done everything he possibly could so that people would not be inconvenienced. But he, he simply couldn't take it anymore, the suffering. And you walk in and you see that and you look at that person and you imagine him coming back from the doctor's office with that news that he was going to have to have more of his leg cut away and how he just gave up. And suddenly it becomes very humanized to you. And it's not just these dead, cold bodies and the gore that's in that place. These are all people. And I'll tell you what really tears me up when I go in the, in the morgue is their personal effects. The personal effects, because they, they clean out their, you know, empty their pockets, um, take out everything from the clothes, and you'll see a money clip, you'll see that somebody had six $1 bills, and then you see a fake $2 bill that you realize someone must have given him as a joke. You see a book of matches from some restaurant where he'd eaten. You see a picture, you know, of his kid, or just the funky things that somebody has in their pocket that, you know, like the pack of cigarettes where one of them's burned down halfway and he's kind of put it out and tucked it in to save money. And all those little things that suddenly make somebody warm again and alive and they never knew that their car was going to go off the road or that they were going to feel such despair that they committed suicide or someone was going to kill them. And that's where I get my passion because they speak to me and I need to tell their story. I couldn't get it just from sitting in my nice house looking out at the woods. Patricia Cornwall talking to me when her book Isle of Dogs, the third book in the Andy Brazil series, when that was just published. Mm-hmm. 